You're listening to the Namely Marley Podcast, episode 14. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Namely Marley Podcast. I'm Marley. This podcast is dedicated to living a creative, healthy, and passion-filled life. My goal is for you to say, Namely Marley is for Namely Me. Today I'm sharing my interview with Carissa Carter, a member of the Stanford D School faculty. Carissa has a degree in geology and studied glaciers in Alaska and steep slot canyons in Utah and Arizona. What does Alaska have to do with creativity? I'm so glad you asked. Sometimes it seems like there's a canyon between science and creativity, but Carissa also has a degree in product design from Stanford, and she's worked in the field of creativity and shares how it can be developed and honed. But first, let's talk about tips and tricks. I've been focusing a lot on technology tips lately, so I thought today I would do something a little bit different. Today's tip is about surrounding yourself with things you really love. And I've heard people say this before, but I don't think I really got it, at least not until recently. The thing is, we bought a new coffee table, um, and that table, well, it actually wasn't new. We bought it from a friend, but I, I loved this table when it was in my friend's house. And when she told me she was selling it, um, I, I jumped on the opportunity because it's one of those big industrial looking tables. Um, and I, I, I wasn't guaranteed win in our house, but I, you know, so I didn't really know what to expect, but it worked. Uh, we got it in our house and I immediately fell in love with the table in our room. And, and suddenly I understand what people say when they recommend having things you love in your home, because even on a bad day, this table makes me feel happy. I know that sounds kind of crazy to say, but, um, I don't know. It just does. So all I want to say is be sure to follow your heart and find things that you really love and things that make you happy. Okay, it's time for the interview with Carissa Carter. Carissa and I talked about creativity, whether it's something people have more of than others and ways you can develop more of it in your life. Let's dive right into the feature segment. This is episode 14 of the Namely Marley podcast. Bring it on. Carissa Carter, welcome to the Namely Marley podcast. Um, Carissa is a designer and strategist with interest in emergence, mapping, and crowdsourcing. A geologist by education, she's a former creative experience design lead with Herman Miller and an avid builder and creator. She recently worked in both Hong Kong and uh, in in the United States uh, and wrote a travel guide to Hong Kong and an executive coach with, let's see if I get this right, Hasso Platman Institute of Design at Stanford. Is that right? Uh, Close. Ah, Help me Um, out. Okay, so Hasso Plattner, like the two things that I do right now is I work at the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford, and I run my own design consultancy. So I feel like, however, that, that's the most accurate. So I, I am curious, when I read that, I saw interest in emergence. What is that? Oh, I just love, well, like where, you know, when we think of emergence, right, you think of natural systems like beehives or, or ant hills, right? Where the sum of the parts is greater than any of the individual parts themselves could ever be. And you can't even predict what would come about based on those individual parts. And I've always wondered about how we can apply that to design. 
And so I tried to pepper some of my personal work with those types of projects that hit at that question in one way or another. I have no real answer to it, but it's something that I, I, I think there's something there and I'm trying to pick away at it through design work. That's excellent. I, we just watched a documentary where they showed, I think they poured uh, cement to, into a, an ant hill or ant. It was a, I think this was in Africa, so it was huge. I mean, they, it was just amazing to see um, yeah. how big it actually was. Yeah, I, and um, I think I saw that. And it, Did you? It, it like went like several feet into the ground, yeah. didn't it? It was like yeah. really intricate little. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and it had like cooling like, systems, and <laughs> it was pretty impressive. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> There's a lot more to ants than we think about sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And so you, you're when you're talking about design, it's funny because I'm I'm thinking when you're saying about how the individual sums are greater than, or the the whole is greater than the individual sums, and I'm thinking about that as relationship to people, but you're talking about design. And what, and I am thinking of it because like people are integral to design. They are design, and especially the the part of the you know design such a loaded word, and the the piece of it that I work on is the the front and the human centered side of it, and so people are are a big component of that. And maybe that's where the crowdsourcing part comes in. Uh, Yeah, I'm also like I think the two like emergence and the crowdsourcing are a bit hand in hand, in that if we're looking at if we want to find emergence in design, I think we need to look at a lot of people and their perspectives and gather all of those perspectives and somehow see what comes about that we would have never predicted from talking to just a few individual samples. Yes. I'm always surprised by um, like products or, you know, I think Apple is a company that seems to do this very well. They look at it from the end user, but Mm -hmm. how many products are designed without any thought to how it's actually going to be used? (laughs) Right, right. You know, and you can spend all this time doing that and developing a product and getting it out there and getting into the world. And you didn't spend enough time up front figuring out how to create the right thing. Yeah. And then that's a huge loss of time and money in the end. Yeah. So, like, I have an MBA, and uh, we actually did a class on uh, production or, or, you know, at least from the management perspective of of Mm -hmm. how to run a production line. And so I really get the reverse engineering part, and I, I... I have a little glimpse into the mind of an engineer from that. Not not to say that I I understand it totally, but for, so for example, we just bought a shelf from Costco to put things on, and it's a great shelf, except that when you move it, it falls apart. <laughs> I just think you know it's a kind of an example to me of how an engineer sitting in a room may design something that's packageable, it looks nice, it it holds things, but you can't move it from A to B without it falling apart. Right, right. It's about like thinking about like what is I mean, doing enough empathy research up front to understand how people will use it and how they will. Yeah. You know, if everybody you're making a shelf for that's on the affordable edge. Chances are, people that are apartment dwellers will be using it, and they might be moving apartments a lot. Yeah. And you know, like so, you look at that whole cycle. Exactly. So I have to ask you this question because um, I see your education spans 
geography, earth science, engineering, and product design. So you obviously have a passion for learning, huh? I love school so much. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And I know it sounds like a drastic or like a, a kind of a divergent or a wandering or like a pivoting path on paper. But, you know, in reality, it felt like a really natural trajectory. Yeah. Um, I was a, so I started off as a geologist and I did Oh, my geology, not geography. Yeah. Sorry about that. Oh, they're, they're related. Yeah. I've always loved mapping, and so I don't mind mm -hmm. being called a geographer. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, did an undergrad in geology and then a grad degree in it. I worked as a geologist for a few years and then kind of realized that I could continue and pursue a PhD and pursue a tiny slice of truth. And I love that. I love, like, what science and that kind of research does for us as mm -hmm you know, humans and our understanding of how the world works. But I also found myself increasingly interested in presentation of information and creating devices to convey what we were studying and why. And I'd always had an undercurrent of art that I was interested in and had practiced. And, you know, it was only at that point that I realized that design was the thing that I could do. Mm. Like I just, I didn't have awareness of it as a discipline before that and then I decided to go for it and I um, decided to get another graduate degree in design that was kind of via mechanical engineering and that's the track I've taken now um, but interestingly enough right now I'm actually teaching a design class on making maps so I think it all comes <laughs> for a full, first, full cycle you know yeah that is interesting yeah <laughs> And so is that you're teaching at this um, college or, or at Stanford? Yes, at Stanford. So the D school is, is a part of um, Stanford University. So that's where I'm teaching right now. It's interesting because I'm, and tell me a little bit more about the D school. It, it seems like it's like an innovative center. Yeah, it's basically a, um, it's called school, but it's not technically a school because it doesn't grant degrees. It's, it offers classes to students in absolutely any discipline. And the whole idea behind it is that we offer design thinking, design experiences that are multidisciplinary, that are made up of people working in teams. Um, so you'll flex those skills. You'll be, you'll do things that are applied to real, uh, real world projects, real world problems. <clears throat> uh, it's very applied hands-on, a lot of building and making, everything's uh, human-centered, so back to that busy piece. Mm -hmm. oh. Excellent. And so it's not necessarily um, college students that are there. It could be a wide range of people. It's primarily, um, it's primarily graduate students at Stanford, and then okay. um, there are new initiatives some in some classes except undergrads at Stanford and then there there is an executive education component to it. So some execs come for special programs. It seems like I saw that you taught a creative work creativity workshop. So you teach um, things outside of, of product design as well. Yeah, so it, like anything that kind of spans the realm of creativity, innovation, like and when I say product design I kind of mean the same thing. Like, and there's a, so there's a lot of words that describe the same thing. 
Um, right. Human-centered design, creative capacity, innovation, like same, same thing. Um, it's all about getting, you know, when you're teaching something like that, it's like, how can I use um, a new set of behaviors and tools that really um, put people at the center of what I'm doing in a really thoughtful way? And how right. can I quickly build and test and iterate things as a way to figure out if what I'm making is the right thing? Creativity is really the reason that I uh, reached out to you in the first place, because I it seemed like that was a topic that you have some expertise in. Cool. And I, I'm just I'm wondering about something that um, you may have an answer to. Yeah. <laughs> you know, children, children seem like they have a lot of creativity, but it seems like it's something that it's harder to maintain as an adult. Is it? Is it? Is it one of those things that you just lose out on as you get older? Oh, I think it's because if you look at, if you look at our K twelve education system, right. It's a lot, and, and mm-hmm. higher ed today, right? It's still built on this industrial revolution framework. It's like a manufacturing plant, right? We were not set up to continue to foster that creativity. And, and you know, I'm not an expert in, the, in K-12 and, and the development of kids, but there's somewhere in there, second grade-ish, right, when... In second grade, you ask everybody, like, who's creative? Who can draw? And everybody raised their hand. And then by the time you get to sixth grade, you get half the people. And when you're in ninth grade, you know, there's one person. And it's not that that changes. It's that there's something about how we're teaching and encouraging that is stopping them. And and David Kelly, who's the founder of the B-School here at Stanford and founder of IDEO, which is a big product design consulting firm. He just came out with a new book um, entitled Creative Confidence, which is all about how we need to incorporate this back into our education systems. Oh, that's great. I'll, I'll leave that a link to that in the show notes. So creative confidence, and it it seems to me like creativity is probably not something that's valued in our culture either. It's starting to come back. I think um, as more and more you know, jobs and tasks are moved overseas or or being you know, being able to be performed and programmed by computers, we're starting to realize that what we what we add value as as humans is are those are those creative things. And I think you'll, like, right now I feel like there's a resurgence of value of um, people that design and what, what they offer. And design is a, is a backbone to a lot of the startup companies that are out there starting to come about. So I think you're right, like, and I agree with you that it hasn't hasn't been at the forefront. It's been a nice, a nice to have, you know, addition to someone. But now it's beginning mm-hmm. to be recognized as something that's even more important. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. Now that you mention it, I think there's a lot more people who are probably employed or making their salary in a career that's more creative oriented. Mm-hmm. I think so. Uh, even, I'm sorry, I guess because I'm in a blog, I have a blog and I know a lot of people who uh, make their income off of their blogs. It, that's a very creative endeavor. Yeah, right. And it's starting to be recognized as you know, not that it's not, like, it was never, like, seen as, it, it was seen as, like, not real, right? right. And now people are starting to realize that there's a, it's much bigger than real. 
Yeah, and it's an exciting thing for someone like me who has an MBA and I, you know, I definitely love business side of things and spreadsheets just excite me. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. the, the, you know, to be able to have this creative thing that I do is exciting. Yeah, yeah absolutely right. And I think, uh, at least personally, what I feel is that I, I need to be challenging both all all the dimensions of my brain in order to be excited about any one one piece of it. So I'm always trying to have like have some creative making project in the background so that my like I stay excited and uh, I'm at my best like when I'm making something. Well, that's a good question. I'm sure, you know, as uh, you have your own business and there are times that you are probably very busy with clients and projects. Um, how do you maintain your own creativity? It's hard. Right? Yeah. I, I actually, so a couple years ago, I had this realization when I, when I was starting my business and leaving the corporate job, I had a, kind of a, a self-reflection session. And sometimes did on my own and yeah. I realized that I needed I wanted to spend my life doing three main types of things and those three things were creating curating and conveying so creating yeah. was like me and making and like crafting my own voice as a designer and curating was um, getting good at recognizing what I thought was beautiful in the world and mm. For that reason, I started to work on a magazine and, and um, practiced fine-tuning that and recognizing good work when I saw it. Like, that's something I wanted to spend time doing. And then the, cura- uh, the, excuse me, the conveying piece was about the teaching. And so mm. I, I realized that those three buckets, if I spent my time doing activities that filled those three buckets, I would be crafting a life that I wanted to have. And so I, I, every so often, every few months, six months-ish, I go back and I look at what I'm doing and I see are there gaps and try to refill that. And it's worked for me. So I find myself that like, you know what, I haven't, I haven't made anything for myself lately. I need to get back and doing that. Like it, it really helps me keep that balance. So I think it was the right framework for me. And that's kind of how I keep myself you know, check and balance and make sure that I'm doing what I should be doing. That's great. And so I think what I'm hearing you say is that not everybody has to have those three buckets, but know what, what it's important to you. Exactly. Exactly. And to make sure you check in from time to time to, you know, not get one bucket over full. Yeah, check in and see, like, is that the right framework for me, you know? Like, is yeah, it, exactly. You know, am I, uh, you know, both to see... Is it already framework for me? But then also, am I am I filling it up the way that I told myself I would? But you find when you do these three things, and you're you're making sure these three areas are covered, then you're you're a happy happy camper. Those those are my happy place activities. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about your Hong Kong book, the travel guide based on sensory experiences. What I've not heard a travel guide written like that. Well, it's kind of a goal, right? Like, you get these guides, and they're often very much about what hotel to stay in and where to be at. You know, like, and it's great. Uh You need guides like that. 
But I, so I lived in Hong Kong for a year and it was just so struck by the sensory experiences there. And I thought, you know, especially here in Hong Kong, there's this tendency for people to arrive and it's kind of like a layover destination for a lot of folks. So they'll come for a day or two. And so how do you get the essence of a place in a short amount of time? And so I thought that it would be really interesting to kind of curate what I thought were the most exciting sensory experiences. And so that could be like a place that has like the most like bizarre range of smells that are happening or colors flashing before your eyes. Um, And I made a, a guidebook based on that. And I talked about like the different senses that each one sparked and a little blurb about, about why to visit there. And, and that's it. So there's no like hotel recommendations, no like suggestions as to, you know, places that you have to definitely have to eat at, et cetera. It's all about like, where do you go if you really want to feel this place? What I love about that is that it sounds like it could lead you off some of the touristy paths and onto something that's a little bit, you know, hidden road kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, and, and that was kind of the goal. Like, I mean, it's, it's not, a, yeah, it, like the touristy things, you know, if you, somebody asks you like, what to do in Hong Kong and, the tour, and they tell you the touristy things, like that's absolutely not what's in here. They would tell you, oh, you want to go up to the peak and look out. Well, you know, that's cool. And it really, yeah, it's beautiful, but you're going to be surrounded by a, a million other people just like you. Yeah. And there's just other ways to get, get an interesting essence. Yeah. I went to Buenos Aires in graduate school and um, b- because I was there for a little bit longer than, than a normal trip and we were actually studying the uh, economic environment of the area, we, I just felt like we got such a great understanding of the city. Yeah. And I thought from that point on, I don't want to travel any other way. <laughs> yeah, right? Yes. Once you get a taste of not being a tourist when you travel, it's, it's kind of addicting. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Okay, so back to the subject of creativity. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, like, this is all part of it, though. I was say, like, it's all part of it. Like, I think it's all goes into creativity, but... I see what you're saying. So, like, even just being aware of your senses, I think, can be a big part of being creative, huh? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Like, understanding the light and how it impacts things and the smells. Letting yourself just experience all that is really important. Well, I mean, so I have this exercise that I'd like to do with students, and it's based off of um, something that was done in the first I kind of developed right around the time that photography started to be developed, and it's called a derive. And say say that again. It's a French word. It's called a derive, D-E-R-I-V-E, with an accent in there somewhere. I'm sure it's like derive. Derive. Yeah, I like it. And it basically the idea was that people would kind of get lost in a meandering path. They would they would walk outside and like see a flash of light, and then like let their eye take them to the next flash that they saw, and like follow a path of just based on what those flashes were. Or if you saw a shape in the shadows, you might follow that same type of shape, and you use that to to take a meandering path 
and a walk and a journey. And so exercise we do is kind of modified off of that, but it's a sensory one in that you feel like we'll send students outside for an hour. And a lot of creativity, I think, is about making space for it to happen because it's not like an instant on-demand thing for most of us. And so they'll go outside for an hour and choose a path to follow. So you might follow a smell. You might follow like uh, like a sight line. So what's the depth of field that I see? You might follow, uh, we had one student follow different like accelerations. So he saw like somebody running and then he saw like, an elevator and, you know, watch the car zoom by and they're all the while they're like making notes on it and like this is these types of techniques are used to inspire you and shake you out of your everyday lens so that you experience something in a new and creative way Hmm. you mean not using our phone (laughs) (laughs) there you go It is addictive, you know, you find yourself just drawn to your phone and you forget to look at the trees around you. It's amazing. It is absolutely amazing how how high we are to these little things. Yeah, that's so true. So then that leads me to a question. Is creativity, you know the age-old question about a child's, it's nurture or nature? If we anthropomorphized creativity and you know it was a a human form in front of it is that nature are people just born with talent and therefore um, they become Picasso or is it something that's nourished oh it's absolutely nourished so I think we're all born with it we're all born you know we're all born with different things and some people excel at different parts of it but we're all born with it to some degree and then we either um, practice it or we don't practice it and that's why I think you see that you know question you had earlier where like a, a lot of adults don't feel creative anymore. Um, but it's not something you can't get back. You just start practicing mm. again. And there's a lot of different a lot of different ways you can, can do that. So there is no such thing as the overnight success. Um, I think like you know, in in what sense? What do you mean the overnight success? Well, I mean I think I said that wrong. I think it's oftentimes easy to look at other people and think they are just naturally talented in whatever. Right. But in reality, maybe we're not seeing the amount of time they put into getting to that point. I think absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. You know, and I think we, we're often predisposed to things that we're good at, but sometimes we're good at that because we have practiced it. Yeah. So, you know, I like, I like think that anybody can, just start practicing again and you never you never really realize what you are great at excellent well see that's encouraging because it means you know there's still hope for anybody to become creative absolutely it's in there it just needs to be reactivated reactivated that leads me to one more question then sure so nourished or nature we answered that age-old question Mm -hmm structured or unstructured is there one style of uh, like if you're home setting is there one style that suits itself better to creativity um you mean structured in terms of like how to learn and practice versus like yeah like like, take a class and learn it or no i guess i mean like in the way if you had if you had an art studio is it is it 
you know, is it is it uh, creativity that flows from a mess of things here and color there, and or is it better to have a more structured environment? So I think it's um, uh, a careful back and forth, and uh. one of the things that we often talk about in design as as related to this is uh, called divergent and convergent thinking, and in divergent thinking, you're going broad, right? So you're looking at all these different things for inspiration, right? This is your messy studio. This is you, like, gathering all all the work that's, that's out there that inspires you and um, not editing, saying, like, no, I don't like that yet. You're just gathering absolutely everything. Yeah. And then in conversion phases of your process, that's when you're making sense of the information you have. That's when you're sorting, you're making frameworks, you're selecting and you're being um, more purposeful about what you're doing. And yeah. both go hand in hand, right? As you're working on some kind of project or the kind of activity, you want to make sure you make space for both. And I think that the messy areas are often the divergent ones. And then they start to clean themselves up as you're doing more convergent ones, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It sounds like it's not an either or. It's like the two worlds can live together. Right. And like, you know what? But the, the best place to start is like what feels right for you. And as you do it more and more, you become more aware of how the environment that you're setting up and practicing in is affecting your work as a creative practitioner, et cetera. Again, it's like something that with time you start to realize, but you can just start doing and seeing how it works in order to get going. Right. I see. So, so you know, if you're finding yourself spending too much time looking for that little thing of paint, then that's going to be frustrating and you're not going to want to do that anymore. Well, yes. Yeah. Well, that's excellent. I, I love this and this has been such a great, great talk. You know, I don't know if you know this about me, but I have this interest in people's names and I noticed that we have something in common because okay. you're Carissa Carter and I'm Marley McMillan. We both have that alliteration thing going on. Yeah. Um, don't you think that gives a person an, an advantage in life? <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Um, <laughs> I like it. I mean, I I didn't change my name when I got married because I feel like such an identity with my name. I can't imagine yeah. having, like, doing that feels so wrong to me. Not because I, you know, don't want my husband's name but this is me you know so right. I think maybe, maybe it's part of strengthening that that identity of who we are I like that. And Carissa is kind of, I mean, I haven't heard of a lot of Carissa's in this area. I'm from Kansas City. Yeah. It's um, not a super common name. It's one where growing up I always had to and still need to introduce myself three times because I'm big Carissa <laughs> and then they say Clarissa? Yeah. And then they say Marissa? <laughs> but, you know, so I have to go through all of the more common examples of it before they understand did your parents ever tell you why they picked that name? Actually, yeah. I have um, a note from my mom's father. And he was the one that either, I don't know if he thought of the name or when my parents decided on the name, he actually wrote this one feature about what the name means. 
it's just really neat because, you know, he passed away when I was like three years old. So I haven't grown up knowing him, but I have this neat history of what that name means. And it's neat to see it in his, uh, in his, you know, his language and in his handwriting. It's cool. That is very cool. What was his language? Uh, he, I mean, he spoke English, but... Oh, I see what you're saying. In the words that he chose to use. Oh, that's wonderful. And it's like a birthright then that, you know, you've got this name that he chose basically for you. Yeah, yeah. That is very cool. Uh, So, Carissa, before we uh, sign off, I was going to ask you one last question. What what inspires you? Um, What inspires me? I, that's such a loaded question. It's so unfair. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> There's probably many things, I'm sure. Yeah. Right? Like, I, as inspired, like, I, so, as a, as a topic, as a subject matter, and something that I love right now, I, I love, like, napping and being inspired by what's uncovered in a nap. As the more, like, day-to-day natural, like, what is inspires me like to get excited every day um like watching my son learn new things or watching a student pick up on something like that's exciting that's inspiring watching other people do great work and working with the smartest people do i don't know if those answers are too cliche but they're they're true It's it's good to be around people who in, inspire you like that. That's great. So if someone's listening to this interview and they're so excited to learn about you, where would they go to find out more about you? Um, well, I have uh, a personal website that is, is perpetually in a state of needing to be updated, and that's snowflyzone.com. Um, Snowflyzone. Yeah. So you can see kind of a running flow of projects I have on there of all different types. Um, uh, you can also find the profile of me on the D-School website um, at Stanford or a big project that I'm proud of that I just finished up with um, is at 2025.stanford.edu, which is where we're reimagining the future of uh, Stanford University. It's part of the great team working on that project and I encourage anybody to check it out. Excellent, and I'll, I'll leave those links in the show notes as well. Great. Carissa, it's been wonderful talking with you. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Marley. Thanks to Carissa Carter for talking with me today. If you'd like to learn more about Carissa, you can find her on Twitter at snowflyzone or head over to namelymarley.com forward slash podcast and look for the show notes page on Carissa Carter. There are links to Carissa's other sites there. Well, that's it for today's podcast. If you have something to share about creativity, maybe some ways you've learned to develop creativity in your own life, please share your thoughts on the show notes page. If you like today's show, I'd love it if you'd subscribe and give it a review on iTunes. This helps the podcast get discovered by more people. I hope this episode was helpful and inspirational to you. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week.